Welcome to the Insight Podcast. Joining me on the show today is Camilla Nord. Camilla leads the Mental Health Neuroscience Lab at the University of Cambridge. Last year, she published her first book, The Balanced Brain, The Science of Mental Health. I talked to Camilla about the biggest thing we get wrong about mental health in the brain, why approaches to mental health must be individualised, getting a clear picture on the causes and treatment of depression, new approaches to treatment, including electrical brain stimulation and psychedelics, what Camilla thinks about the current conversation around mental health, and much more. Enjoy the episode. What's the biggest thing we get wrong about the brain and our mental health? I think the biggest thing we get wrong about our mental health specifically is actually to separate it so profoundly from our physical health. I think it's been, there's sort of societal reasons, cultural reasons, maybe even instinctive reasons why we do that. But I think it's wrong. And in the balanced brain, I really, I put forward a sort of theory as to how our brain works, which is really interconnected with how our body works. And I I sort of, I hope I show that sometimes this division is incorrect and sometimes it's actually unhelpful or even damaging for individual patients whose symptoms might not fall cleanly along mental or physical health lines. Right. Can you expand on that a little bit more, like that link between the physical body and the brain? So there are so many ways in which this link fascinates me. So uh, in my lab, we're very interested in what processes in the body affect our thoughts, behaviours and mental health. And when I say processes in the body, this actually ranges really very widely. It's things like the immune Mm -hmm. system. So we know heightened inflammation can sometimes change our thoughts, even change our mood. Um, And this is particularly true in some people. So there are kind of individual differences in the degree to which your immune system might affect your mental health. That's perhaps something you might be aware of, but then it even goes sort of more surprising, I would say. One of my favorite studies in this domain, which is done by a friend of mine, Sarah Garfinkel, and her former collaborator, Hugo Critchley. So they were measuring people's heartbeats and they found beat to beat that when your heart beats, that kind of systole moment when it pumps blood around your body, for that moment, you're better at detecting fearful faces. This involves the amygdala, so it's a heart-brain interaction. And then in between heartbeats, in diastole, when the heart's filling up with blood, you're a little bit less good at detecting fearful faces. So this is a a small change in perception, but that's moderated on a beat-by-beat basis. Um, And I think that's absolutely fascinating. So that's probably at the kind of just scientific end why I think it's so compelling. But then, of course, at the clinical end, I'm also very interested in people's experiences of their body, which can be very different in mental health conditions. Um, Often people report, they first report bodily symptoms, things like I feel shaky, I've got a stomach ache every day. These can be, these can be kind of the core manifestations of some anxiety problems. Um, And equally, sometimes people find changing something physically, starting exercise, for example, can be really helpful for their mental health. So that's kind of why I'm so interested yeah, in it. it's fascinating. And I guess it goes back to some of the uh, whole, uh, some historical perspective on mental health, like things like you trust your gut or you get a gut feeling or, you know, my heart's racing and, and how this all like it intertwines, isn't it? But then those perceptions between heartbeats, I mean, we're talking milliseconds there, aren't we? And that, that can be the difference in your perception yeah. of the world. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And, and you're right that the our intuition is there, certainly, about something like gut feelings and also about other organs in the body. But I think gut feelings really reflects mm. a reality, the reality that things that are happening in our gut are actually influential 
um, over what we're thinking and how we're feeling in that moment. And it's not unidirectional. It's true in the other direction as well. Things that we're thinking, ways that we're feeling can influence our gut. Interesting. Yeah. Um, the, the word inflammation, uh, I'm, I'm interested to hear your kind of, your take on that because I, I've heard that in different contexts, like inflammation of the gut and how that can affect different parts of the body. You know, you, you linked it with the immune system. But what what are you thinking is going on there? And what, what do we mean by inflammation on, in the body, its causes, and how it relates to the brain as well? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that because you're right that people use it in very yeah. diverse ways. I'm actually using it quite specifically to mean raised levels of in immune markers, things like they're called pro-inflammatory cytokines circulating in our bloodstream that come as a response to something like infection, but they also increase in response to mm. stress. So there's this clear kind of measurable effect of even just acute short-term stress on our immune system. And that's what I refer to as inflammation, but it's a very general term and even these specific actions on the immune system mean many different things. And it, and it's not just sort of one thing, you either have it or you don't. It, there's sort of very many little kind of fascinating details of certain markers that might increase the likelihood of you developing certain symptoms and others, others yeah, and so on. Because it, it seems like the conversation is around, we've got to minimize, get rid of inflammation. You don't want inflammation, but of course, inflammation is essential, isn't it? Like if you cut your arm, yeah. um, if you get ill, then inflammation is the correct response by your body. But is it that kind of when it when it runs away with us or when there's that kind of chronic underlying stress and we're constantly in that inflamed state, if that's the right term, um, that that's when we can encounter problems? Is that right? Yeah, I think we, we of course, need an immune system. <laughs> and this response to stress that I'm describing is adaptive. It's good that your body prepares itself in the context of stress, whether that's an infection where it obviously needs to, or even something like psychological stress, where you can understand the rationale for why your body might sort of prepare itself physically in the context of psychological stress. I think the difficulty becomes, you know, perhaps... Perhaps that initial response is heightened in some yes. people. Perhaps it's more debilitating in some people. And then I, I suppose a level that I think has been neglected is perhaps it's perceived more in some people. So I'll elaborate on that for a second. I, Of course, there are objective, measurable differences in, in immune system problems, inflammation between people. But there's this other level that I'm really interested in, and it's at the brain level. This is called interoception, the sense of the internal condition of the body. And this is stuff like being aware of when your heart beats, being aware of when your stomach rumbles. It's a subjective sense of the condition of your body. And when it comes to the immune system, we also have a subjective sense of our own kind of inflamed state. You know when you feel ill. And this, I think, is an important metric that can determine how debilitating an individual infection response to stress, some other immune provocation might be for you personally. Um, and I think it means that we need to think about it not just at the level of the blood and the immune system, which we do, but also at the level of the brain and how the brain is processing those signals. So then is that about coaching people, teaching them about this, about how just how kind of powerful their perceptions are? I mean, I don't know if I'm off the mark here, but what I'm thinking about is kind of my perception of my own anxiety or my own stress around something that's coming up. And I'm, I'm learning a lot more recently about how you can flip that perspective and you can see your stress as a good thing. You can see your anxiety as a good thing. Like if you've got a talk coming up or a, you're delivering some training and you're really, you're getting butterflies in the stomach and your heart beats pounding, you're like, oh, I must be stressed. I'm not prepared for this. Imposter syndrome is kicking in. But then you can flip that and say, this is good. This means that I'm kind of prepared and I'm ready um, and I'm going to deliver something really good. Um, impactful um but then i also i find it in the mornings as well like i've mentioned this a couple of times before on this podcast that i, I can be waking up in the morning and straight away i feel like my heart's racing i feel like adrenaline's going around my body and i feel like more kind of anxious and on edge than i did a couple of years ago and i think i initially thought that's a bad thing like i shouldn't be waking up like that 
But then I kind of talked to some people about it and I kind of reflected a bit and thought, am I just waking up and like ready to get on with my day? And am I just wanting to, you know, sometimes I'll just open the laptop up and, and start doing something productive. And maybe that's okay because it fits in with my lifestyle. I don't know, what, what, do, what do you think? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right that a kind of key level of this is your interpretation of events happening in the body. I think it's, it's not the only level because there are differences in just perception of them. Um, but I think interpretation is, you know, probably really important in how this plays out, how it manifests in your mental health. And I really like your example of sort of reinterpreting nerves before doing something or reinterpreting how you might feel in the morning. The one thing I would I I would ask you, I guess, is what's your circadian rhythm? Are you a morning person? I think I am, yeah. So me too. And I, I also feel like that in the morning. So I think kind of circadian rhythm plays this really cool role in our mental health. If you measure people's symptoms in a given day, they'll change, as you would imagine, but they'll change often in line with that individual person's circadian rhythm. Um, we've just uh, we've just had some work out in my lab where we're looking at people's motivation, sort of their decision to engage in physically effortful behavior. Um, and for people like you and I, we look very motivated if you measure us in the morning, as people often do in laboratories. But we did this experiment online and working with a really amazing PhD student in my lab, Sarah Merhoff, she titrated the times of the day so that some people were doing it at the wrong time. So some morning people were doing it in the evening and some evening type people were doing it in the morning. And lo and behold, you and I do not look so good <laughs> if you test us in the evening. <laughs> And um, and the opposite is true for people with late circadian rhythms. So I think you might sometimes expect people with later circadian rhythms, they've come out as perhaps like sometimes more apathetic, less sensitive to reward on measures. But many of those experiments were done in the mornings. And in our experiment, we showed that if you do it at the right time of the day for them, they come out more willing to engage in effort than yeah, you and I. Yeah, makes sense to me, makes sense. And it's almost like in the past I've, fought against my rhythm perhaps and I've stayed up later and got up later and wondered why I'm not feeling great. But when I know when I'm in the habit of going to bed earlier, say even as early as nine, nine thirty, and getting up at five, five thirty, I feel really good. But then I don't, it's almost like I don't want to tell people that because I don't want to be that guy. Oh, I get up at five. But you know, if it suits me, then and if it suits you, then why not? But it's kind of like we we, we want to hide that part of ourselves and say, Yeah, yeah, I had a line, yeah, yeah, I'm tired all the time as well, like you. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's my perfect schedule, kind of 9.30 to 5.30. But I, I hit it much more when I was younger and I would sort of be up late, rounded to friends, at a party, and then I would yeah. just fall asleep on the sofa. It was incredibly <laughs> embarrassing. <laughs> so let's get more into those um, individual differences, which is what you, you are really interested, isn't it? Aren't you about um, kind of writing about and, and speaking about? So I was, I was kind of reflecting on this and thinking, broadly speaking, we, we seem to want and enjoy the same things and we seem to be angered and saddened and disappointed by the same things. How can it be then that mental health is, is different for all of us? Oh, what an interesting question. I do think there are there's huge overlap in what people find pleasurable and what people find unpleasant. Everybody hates pain almost everybody hates pain. I think there's, you know, immense overlap. Um, we're all the same species. But I think there is not as much overlap in the degree to which these things affect our kind of long-term chronic mental health and well-being. And I'll give the example of something that is objectively horrible, mm. trauma. If you experience trauma, Nobody likes it. Everybody is distressed by it. It's a terrible, terrible experience that I wish no one went through. However, not everybody then develops something like post-traumatic stress disorder. Actually, most people don't. Most people who've been through terrible things in their life don't develop PTSD. And to me, this is one of the great mysteries, but it's also... I think, indicative of these individual differences, of the fact that because you're experiencing these things in your own personal sort of network of 
your brain and your body, sort of your general nervous system of the things that have happened to you before, the ways those have influenced your nervous system. Um, because of that, it can have a profoundly different impact on different people. And so that's probably the most extreme example, but you can see how trickling down small things would also have different degrees of benefit on people's mental health. Even grand changes might really work for someone, but not someone else. Interesting. Post-traumatic growth is a term that I've heard before. Is that something you're familiar with as well? Um, actually, no, I, I think I have heard of it, but it's, it's, I suppose it's like another reaction to stress, yeah, to trauma. Exactly, that yeah, exactly. The post-trauma, you've, hmm. you've then taken stock. I mean, I'm no expert or, or whatever, but you've kind of come out the other side and you are stronger for it. And, and, and there's been some good come from that trauma, trauma, which is obviously, as you said, we wouldn't wish it on anyone, but I think we, we know a lot of very famous and um, impactful people that went through some horrific things maybe in their childhood, teenage years, and they came out the other side of that and, and they are doing a lot of good in the world and they put it down to what they went through when they were younger. So it's a really interesting example that you shared. Yeah, that's really interesting. <laughs> so what does this mean then for each of us then? How can we like approach life in such a way to to be happier, be more, more content, more fulfilled, and also deal confidently with challenges. If there is all of these individual differences, like what do we do then? How, how are there, are there some general principles that we can all apply? And I know shortly we'll maybe be getting into some of the, the new and exciting treatments that you've, you've, you've looked into, but I know any thoughts initially around that? Yeah, I think it could be initially a little bit of an overwhelming thought. And one of the main messages of, of my book, The Balanced Brain, is that there isn't a silver bullet. But I don't want that to be a negative message. I, it would be nicer to sell a silver bullet. But I, I truly believe that the message that something that is a silver bullet for one person, even if you share the same symptoms, the same disorder as them may very well not be a silver bullet for you. I want it to actually be uplifting because it means that if and when you try that thing and it doesn't work, don't mm. despair. There's nothing sort of exceptionally wrong with you. There's nothing, you know, necessarily worse about you. It may well just be that your particular mental state was brought about by different processes different mechanisms, meaning don't give up and try something else. Now, my eventual vision is for something a little bit, a little bit more difficult than that, difficult societally to shift this. But what I would optimally really like is a much better prediction at the level of an individual for what kind of intervention would work for them. And I say intervention, not treatment, because sometimes modifying your sleep schedule, changing your diet, changing exercise, these are things that work for some people. And then for other people, you need things that are kind of thoroughly in the category of medical or psychological treatments. So for me, I, ideally, I would like a much better individualized model of what would work for whom. But I don't think we're there yet. But I do want people to know why we're going in that direction, why I think we should be going in that direction and sort of the ways in which they can make personal decisions knowing what, what we know about the nature of mental so health. So what would that look like? Is this work with a professional So is... Go on, sorry. <laughs> it doesn't right? have to be. So I think sometimes the way this is most, uh, the way this is played out, the way it's sort of being tested in various forms around the world is as some kind of algorithm that's mm -hmm. implemented in tandem with the clinician. So it's not kind of independent of a decision that a doctor or a clinical psychologist would make. It's something that you would sort of do together to work out what the next step might be and then sort of talk about it and discuss whether that's something you'd be open to, et cetera. So it's not like a kind of machine learning black box, at least not the way that I would envisage it. But I think there are some steps to get there that we haven't done yet. And one of those steps is a much more um, clear mechanistic picture of mental health in the brain. So for example, many, many studies around the world have highlighted a number of different brain regions that seem to work slightly differently in people experiencing depression, for example. But we need to know at an individual level 
what would your brain look like if you would be best paired with this particular treatment versus that particular treatment? And there are some studies to that effect, but those are the most important studies to run to move us towards this kind of future. And I don't mean to say that every solution involves a brain scan. I actually think you can trickle down and use the knowledge that we have about neuroscience to generate things that you could do just on a computer or perhaps even a mobile phone that would assess these different brain circuits. Because we know quite a lot now about the types of brain circuits that are involved in particular behaviors. And so that's a way in which you could sort of have something scalable, but actually linked to the brain, which is ultimately where every treatment or intervention Interesting. works. Interesting. The future of mental health care. So, it, so when you're talking about an algorithm, it, it reminds me of, say, that people are doing like gut microbiome tests now, aren't they? And getting a really individual sense of what's going on here and then maybe which foods suit you or don't suit you. So is this the kind of thing, like we, we get all this data, like there's there's Zoe, isn't there, that um, the, the app Tim Spector's involved with and they're um, assessing, I think, using continuous blood glucose monitors, that kind of thing. So collecting data and then applying it to the, the general population is that what you're saying? And what when you say algorithm, do you mean that people are inputting data as well? Maybe it's like that you're on a phone and um, an app, mood tracking, talking about your habits, and then we can get a sense of an individualized plan for um, what suits you. Is that what we're talking about? Yeah, exactly. Um, so you're right that I would love the kinds of biological data that you're talking about, for example, some kind of gut measure to be incorporated into this. I think that would help because it gives us an indication of where the solution might come from for an individual. So if you're not measuring it, then you'll never know if that's the right level to intervene on for that individual person. Um, as to what people would be providing, so I think from a research level, we need to be testing everything, including, as you say, assessments of how people's mood are changing throughout the day. There's some really interesting algorithms looking at kind of how your mood fluctuates over a couple week period and using that to predict sort of periods of poor mental health so that you can sort of intervene mm. early. That seems really important too. I think kind of on this treatment level, I probably envisage something maybe closer to the brain mechanism. So it would be like, maybe you're doing a game on your phone that assesses how sensitive you are to rewards, how much effort you'll put into them. And these other mechanisms that we know not only are disrupted in mental health, but map onto specific treatments. And then that could give us an idea, okay, this particular medication or this particular type of psychological therapy is actually very suitable for remediating that disruption that we've measured oh, in you. Okay. Can we move on to depression? Uh, a cheerful subject. Um, depression is being looked at differently now, isn't it? Um, can you tell me more about this? I've, I've heard about the, the chemical imbalance theory and why we may have kind of misunderstood the causes of depression. Can you speak more to that? Yeah, I'll, I'll talk you through sort of the various phases our society has gone through recently in depression. So I suppose in the in the kind of late 20th century, this idea of a chemical imbalance theory was very popular. And where that comes from is there are certain disorders, for example, Parkinson's disease, where many of the symptoms do originate from a chemical imbalance, from a lack of dopamine. It's a very good explanation because it, it's not everything in Parkinson's disease, but it maps very well onto a very effective treatment where if you raise dopamine levels, the symptoms are remedied. And so that model that works for some disorders was essentially kind of placed onto psychiatric disorders, including depression. And the reason for that was in the other direction because medications that were found to increase serotonin and other chemicals like serotonin worked for at least a good number of people with depression. So people did some sort of backwards calculations and they were like, aha, there must be a deficit of this chemical in depression. And I would say in some ways, the jury is still out. So there is some evidence to suggest that absolutely not everyone with depression has a kind of so-called chemical imbalance. So that initial iteration of the theory where you maybe put the disorder all together and said, okay, everyone has lower levels of this, that, that probably can't be true. But there is some evidence to suggest that there are disruptions in this system 
in the serotonin system in at least some people with depression, but it might not be as obvious as the ones we first looked for. Um, and so I think, I think the story is it might be wrong. It might just be more complicated than we thought. I'm a little bit agnostic between those two theories, but it also doesn't <laughs> matter because what we need to know is what treats depression. And we also need to know what causes it. But in my view, anyway, many different things cause it. And even if serotonin plays a role, so even if some aspect of the chemical deficit theory was right, it's certainly not the whole story. And it may not even be, you know, the particular level we need to investigate it for every patient. So it's always going to just be part of the puzzle, even if it's a bit right. But what matters is, does a treatment work? And if you look at the kind of strongest evidence on drugs like antidepressants that raise levels of serotonin, they work in a number of people with depression, about 50 to 60%, not all. And so what that tells me is that they are drugs that we need to keep using for some people, use better in people, sort of figure out the best way to use them, and we need to find other treatments for other people. So that's kind of what that story tells me. One thing I talk about in my book is how the chemical deficit theory, both is sort of not what neuroscientists have thought for a long time. I wasn't even taught it as an undergraduate a million years ago. I was taught this isn't like a full explanation for depression. But, but what we think today, the explanation I find most compelling for why antidepressants work is actually much more interesting than a chemical deficit. So one of the problems, one of the many problems with the kind of original chemical deficit theory is that even just one dose of antidepressants should fix your depression if they were right, because it raises levels of serotonin yeah, immediately yeah. in the brain or, you know, after like 30 minutes, but it shouldn't take four weeks. So that's a conundrum if you're sort of a diehard subscriber to that old theory. But so we need to know what it's actually doing immediately and why that would take a couple of weeks to work. And to that, I think we need to look to some really wonderful work done now a few years ago um, at Oxford by um, these professors called Catherine Harmer and Phil Cowan. And they did this beautiful work showing that even a single dose of antidepressants doesn't change your mood, but changes your perception of the world around you, changes the way you process information. So if, for example, you see a face on a computer screen that you would normally categorize as a slightly angry face, you would be more likely after a dose of antidepressants to say it's neutral or even a positive face. And the same is true for a sentence, a narrative you might read, all these other sources of ambiguous information that just, you know, are completely bombarding us in our day. And with, with depression, you're more likely to have a negative interpretation of this ambiguous information. And after a dose of antidepressants, you're not. So I think that is a source of a mood change. It's not enough, but it's a foundation that after more and more, slightly more positive interpretations, that could trickle down into after a couple of weeks, changing your mood. And it also seems to be important in predicting who it works for, by the way, because I think it's altogether possible that this mechanism, you know, it's sort of can happen in you, but it might not be core to your depression unless that is something that has been, you know, process-wise causing your depression in the first place. Right. So some, if I'm getting this right, <laughs> some people that might take antidepressants, they might not feel a difference in, in a couple of days. It might take a couple of weeks, but you're, but there is studies to show that we can see that there's a difference because of how they're interpreting the world. Yeah, in theory, no one feels difference in a couple of days. That's just right. not how the, the medications seem to work. It always takes at least a couple of weeks, yeah. basically. And so this is a this is an explanation for why you might need that kind of buildup of experiences in this new brain state for it to affect okay. your mood. Okay. And oh, what was I about? I had a question already lined up in my head. <laughs> Oh, yes. So if it's not then the chemical imbalance theory, what might be going on there in depression? Is it, um, is it our friend inflammation again? Is it something else? What, what's, what could be the causes? So to answer that question, I, I need to actually unpack what I think depression is, which in my view is many things. So I think 
depression from a kind of biological perspective has multiple causal roots. And that's because it's that's not just because they're kind of multiple causal roots ending in one thing. It's actually because depression is not just one thing. And you can think about this even just logically. Two people might meet diagnostic criteria for depression, but not share a single symptom in common. That's just how it works. It's a, it's a disorder of a number of different symptoms and your particular phenotype, your particular characteristics might be very or even totally different from someone else's. So too, I think, might some of the mechanisms causing it. Not that I think everybody has some completely unique mechanism, but I think there's a distinct number of mechanistic roots that can lead to conditions we sort of group together that are called depression. So there are lots of good reasons for having a diagnosis, but that doesn't mean that that diagnosis necessarily corresponds with the way like biology invented it, if if that makes sense. Um, So then to answer your question, I would say some people with depression may have origins in the serotonin system, maybe something not totally distinct from the original Um, chemical deficit hypothesis, but many people will have other origins, for example, other neurotransmitter involvement, such as dopamine or noradrenaline, another brain chemical, um, involvement of other systems in the body, not necessarily independent from those brain chemicals, but interacting with them, including inflammation. Um, And so that's really how I see it, that there are probably clusters of mechanisms that then are causing these grand disruptions in in mood and appetite and so on that we see in depression but then what you're saying as well is it doesn't not that it doesn't matter but what we want to focus on is the treatment it's like it doesn't really matter how you've broken your arm but how are we going to treat your particular case of a broken arm and and that's what we want to look at yeah the the treatment and, and maybe not get to um not spend too much time on the 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 causes (laughs) Yeah, I mean, of course, I think the causes are are mm. interesting and they're important in that they might map on to the right kind of treatment for someone. And I and when I say causes, I do actually mean like kind of the most proximal causes in the brain and in the body. I'm not talking about necessarily something that happened to you as a child that may or may not be relevant in your treatment, but the way in which that has affected your brain and body. I think that must be relevant in your treatment because that is where your treatment is going to either work or not work on. Right, okay. And so that leads us nicely to treatment. Um, in, in your book, you talk about a range of diverse treatments, don't you? Um, some new, exciting kind of advances in the way that we approach mental health. Um, are there any that you are particularly excited about, particularly that are particularly interesting that maybe listeners have not heard of? Um, So in my book, I really tried to include a sort of range of treatments, including antidepressants, psychological therapy, psilocybin, other psychedelics, um, but also a treatment that is, I think, perhaps slightly neglected. So not that I think it's better than all other treatments, just that I think it's perhaps neglected in popular conversations, which is brain stimulation. So brain stimulation is a very interesting treatment um, for many reasons. One is it gets a terrible reputation. So I think people picture sort of one flew over the cuckoo's nest. It's like just a really, really difficult subject to broach. Now that type of brain stimulation, which is at the much more kind of um, people at a huge risk and that's the only kind of population in which you would consider something like electroconvulsive therapy is still used and is very effective, actually the most effective treatment for really, really severe depression. But the vast majority of people with depression are not suitable for a treatment like that. Instead, some of them might benefit from these kind of much less invasive, actually totally non-invasive forms of brain stimulation that have become um, honestly just a very common, common mechanism, common method used in neuroscience today to probe the function of the brain. So something like transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is the form of of this kind of non-invasive brain stimulation that has the best evidence for depression, you position it over the outside of the head and it delivers an electromagnetic pulse to a region directly underneath the skull, somewhere on the outside of the brain called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. Usually you can try other regions as well. And 
what it does then is it changes the electrical activity in quite a small region of the brain for a short period of time. And when used for depression, you get this a number of times, sometimes multiple times in a day, sometimes a few days in a row for a few weeks, and then it can have a cumulative and for some people really transformative effect on their mood. And there are a few NHS clinics that exist around the country delivering this form of brain stimulation. But I do like to talk about it, not again, because I think it's better, but because I think it's actually probably underused relative to its safety and efficacy. Right, and it could work for some people. So am I wrong in thinking mm-hmm. that it's like a parallel between a uh, defibrillator where we you know the, the heart is beating out of rhythm so we stop it and then it can kind of start again is that what's going on with the brain is it just enough to like interrupt and then get things firing correctly if that's the right term I, I think it's not totally it's not totally distinct from that that is probably more close to something like right. ECT a much more general treatment this kind of targeted treatment is so specific it would be like targeting like I don't know one specific oh, valve okay. that you thought was dysfunctional in the heart it's a little bit more focused although who knows maybe the way it works is actually more of a reset um but I I think you know, we'd like to think it's a little bit more um, specific than that. And certainly some of the treatments in development are going deeper in the brain and using other kind of methods to target very, very tiny regions. Um, and so I would hope to kind of use that reset in a very specific way for the circuits that we know need to be reset. Your whole brain doesn't necessarily need to be reset. Interesting. And what about psychedelics? I'm interested to hear your thoughts on that. I know that's not a question that I sent you beforehand, but if you don't mind answering. I'm in, uh, first of all, I'm interested in hearing everyone's <laughs> thoughts on psychedelics because it's such a hot topic right now. And I've been really fascinated by the way in which society has transformed its approach to like psychedelics. Just in the last five Just years. In the yeah. Last five, yeah. <laughs> Crazy, crazy to see and really actually inspiring that sometimes general societal mores, opinions can change. And so that's been a really wonderful thing to see because I do think that for a long time, research in this area on this class of drugs was sort of artificially suppressed by Mm. policy, by kind of government regulation. And that's not good when it suppresses kind of medical advancement. That's definitely a bad thing. Um, Having said that, my view on psychedelics is that they should be um, like treated, regulated, researched, just like any other psychiatric drug. You sometimes see people who are, you know, on one day talking about the dangers of antidepressants and how you have to think about side effects. And you absolutely do. Don't get me wrong. Antidepressants are a serious medication where you have to be aware of the risks, but so are psychedelics. So I think we need to approach them just as a kind of novel class of pharmacological treatments. And I hope also that there are some lessons we can take in the other direction. So something I'm really keen on is um, in future finding really excellent ways to combine psychological and pharmacological treatments. So instead of this model where someone's on antidepressants for years and then sometimes they might do a course of CBT or some other psychological therapy, finding short-term drugs that can enhance specific bits of psychological therapy, you know, one hour of treatment, three hours of an exposure therapy session, and so on, pairing the right biological method with the right psychological method for that patient to then respond better to the psychological therapy. Really new idea for other drugs, not new for psychedelics. They basically always do psychedelics in the context of some sort of supportive psychological therapy. So that's how I think they can help us in kind of traditional traditional mental health care as well. And then the final thing I'll say is that obviously I love this field. I'm very excited by anything new that might work for people. I would just like more people to be able to kind of access treatments and respond to treatments. However, they're really not the right treatments Mm. for everyone. So I think my message of kind of the, the no silver bullet message really strongly applies to psychedelics. There are certainly people who have side effects, who have dissociative episodes. So we shouldn't be looking at them as a kind of cure all either. Yeah, because it's like, 
I feel like there are some people that think a quick trip to South America and an ayahuasca, um, what's it called? Not experience. Ceremony, that's it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That that will, you know, be the silver bullet, as you say, and and solve all the problems. But it's about that, all the things that go along with it, isn't it? And doing it with a professional, which I think, you know, all the... All the big people are talking about that, like, be really careful. It's not just a case of one one trip or something that then you you could you could, you know, cure all your all your mental health issues that we have got to be really, really careful. But it's interesting, as you said, that that it's being discussed more. And you know, is it a case of five years ago, ten years ago, someone in a position in a university, a professor, would would not want to talk about it at all for risk of you know losing their job or something if they even mentioned it is that is that true it was just basically impossible to do the research so I was just looking at the year 2024 so I was very much in this field 10 years ago and I did know some people working on psychedelics it was basically like one two labs in in England maybe one lab who managed yeah in, in England who who managed to have the official kind of home office license to do this kind of work and it was so difficult it was so difficult you couldn't be running a big trial it was sort of like tiny studies so well regulated it was it was really really challenging. I don't think traditional funders right. were funding it in that at that point. So it was difficult on all levels. Yeah, watch this space. I think is it, is it Australia that's just approved. Um, what is it? More research or or the kind of the application? No, they've approved the use right. of it clinically. So it's really um, really significant. Actually, their regulatory decision is that. Now um, a doctor can just prescribe it. So I just saw, I think, the first a picture of the first prescription for MDMA, um, and it came from a doctor in in Australia, um, which was the first of this new kind of regulatory uh, style that they're trying out there. So I think um, I could never have imagined that a decade ago. Wow. And is that like? Is it? How does it work? Is it like a microdose? Is it that you you keep taking it, or is it you, that you have one? big dose and how does it work? Um, so yeah, usually it's the right. latter. So the data on microdoses um, is their placebo. Ah, okay. <laughs> or I should I should be a little bit more nuanced there. If they're truly micro, the, do- the doses that people call microdoses, um, if you then kind of control for expectation by telling people it's a microdose, but it's nothing and telling people it's nothing when it's a microdose and they don't know which one they're taking. So if you do a proper kind of double blind randomized controlled trial, what you see is microdoses only work when you think they're a microdose. So you need the placebo effect for them to do anything. Um, in contrast, the macro doses no <laughs> doubt. Do, do seem to actually do something. It's still very difficult to incorporate properly placebo-controlled studies into the psilocybin and other psychedelic literature. And the reason for that is like people know when they're on a psychedelic. It's not impossible though. So people are doing a better job and there are, you know, you see a few more trials. I like trials that kind of compare two drugs that both have quite a, a big psychoactive effect. So if you compare, for example, ketamine with psilocybin, if you're drug naive, I mean, like, who could tell the difference? It's just like a, it's a, so, so I think that's a really good way to say, look, the mechanisms in the brain, completely different. Our predictions are completely different, but people don't have that huge bias of expectations, which are so important to control for. Um, and also I would say just so important to treatment more generally, because those miraculous stories of people going on an ayahuasca retreat and getting better, they did they might not have needed the ayahuasca. There are many, many stories of people having a hugely miraculous recovery from mental or even some physical health conditions because they've had some sort of transformative experience that they really hoped and expected they would get better from. So kind of they're sort of individual questions about how to get better. And I think expectations are very important there. And then they're like scientific and medical questions about what works. And there, I think we have to really control for expectations. So two sides yeah, of the same watch coin. Space. <laughs> what about more generally speaking, I'd love to know from you what your sense of the, the conversation is around mental health, as in, do we talk enough about mental health? Are we talking too much about mental health now? Is it that, um, just kind of the the 
the normal storms and stresses of the human experience are now quickly labelled as anxiety, depression, stress, whereas actually this is just part of, of life? Or is that a very insensitive thing to say? I don't know. I want to know what you think. So if you look at kind of rates of mental health problems in young people, they've skyrocketed. It looks like our youth mental health is terrible. Um, but if you look at, for example, sort of objective reports of specific symptoms, it increases, but not as dramatically. And what that tells you is that there is something else at play. And one of those things is a good thing. It's increased access to diagnosis, which can mean increased access to resources to help someone's mental health. So in some senses, it's like, who cares if in the past they would have been distressed and now they have a classification, but they actually get treatment for their distress. I'm really happy that they have a classification. So we don't necessarily need to look at that as a worsening of mental health, but rather a labeling that helps someone access really essential resources. On the other hand, I do think that there are examples of kind of symptoms where an overfocus on particular problems might exacerbate the symptoms themselves. So this kind of, you know, real emphasis on constantly calling everything, you know, a mental health problem we all need, we all have bad mental health. In a way, it has a sort of, it blurs the lines between feeling a bit crap, as we all do, probably quite frequently in January, <laughs> and genuine experiences of mental health conditions and disorders, which I think is should be a, an important protected category of people who need help, who need resources, who need treatments. And so sometimes I think the kind of conversations about mental health, conversations about mental health awareness, paint everyone with the same brush and sometimes that actually disadvantages the people who need that the most. And what are you excited about for the future? I mean, we've already mentioned the treatments that um, you find particularly interesting. Anything else that you're excited about in the field of mental health? Well, scientifically, I have become really enthralled by the interaction between our metabolism and our mental health. So this is a little bit like when you mentioned the Zoe app. This is a little bit like that. We're starting to use continuous glucose monitors in my lab because we think that the way you metabolize food might actually have some interesting parallels with the way that your brain learns about and expects things in the world. Why would this be the case? Because we have things like insulin receptors in our brain, which interact with chemicals like dopamine. So maybe in the future, when we're thinking about chemical deficits or chemical dysfunction, we'll be thinking beyond just basic neurotransmitters, but also including metabolic signals like insulin. So I think that is a really kind of exciting future. And from a clinical angle, I think it could help us understand why, for example, depression is so common in people with diabetes and mm. vice versa. So really understanding sort of common risk for metabolic and mental health, which is a real source of disability and and even sometimes death so it's a really important thing to look at so does this mean there there is some justification in using the term hangry when you're you're really really hungry and so you're a bit <laughs> exactly moody. of yeah. course i'm being very um H hangry is the absolute lowest course. level of this connection yeah, it's the one that i experienced most yeah frequently. and it's true because like i think um you know we've thought that maybe only people with with diabetes that we you know when when they're blood sugar drops that maybe we, we see a change in their mood and things but I don't know from my personal experience I can just like my energy levels can just go woof when I know I haven't eaten correctly during the day like I can be around people and for the first hour I'm feeling good but then I think like it always seems to be when I haven't quite like timed my meals correctly that then I can just like crash and just be like right I'm going now gotta go home <laughs> don't want to talk to any of you <laughs> Yeah. I, and I think what's so interesting is that often you don't experience it as hungry. Yes, like if yeah. someone said to you, are you hungry? Your instinct might be to say, no, I'm actually just really yeah. pissed off. So you have to, and it's, and it's quite, it's, I think that, that bit is fascinating that it's that insight, as you say, in terms of interpreting your heartbeats in different scenarios, it's that insight that sometimes exacerbates some kind of mood or emotional episode that you're feeling because you lack the insight into the true causes of why you're feeling that way. 
Right, three quick fire questions to, to round off. The first one is, what's one lesson you wish you'd have been taught when you were a child? So there are lots of things that I would still like to learn um, about the world. And maybe I wish I'd learned them as a child, but I suppose I could say something more personal as well, which is that as a child, I was really obsessed with punctuality. I still kind of am in a way. And I I do wish that there had maybe been some more lenience at school. I got in trouble if I was late, which you're, it's never your fault as a child. It's always your parents' fault. And it really affected me in terms of how much I worry about punctuality as an adult. And so I think maybe one lesson would have been sort of, it's okay to be late, to be imperfect sometimes. It, it definitely wasn't a lesson I got at school. You should just move to like Spain and some of those hot Mediterranean countries where it's yeah. like, you know, uh, turning up an hour late is fine. <laughs> um, what's one habit that you've introduced to your life that's maybe helped you feel happier and healthier? So the habit that I do the most that really helps my mental health is that I practice yoga every day. But one of the messages of my book is that if your friend tells you, hey, I practice yoga every day, you should try it. Your mental health is going to be great. You know, have a think because it... <laughs> It may well not work for you, but it it really has worked for me. So I've been I've been doing it for about fifteen years now, and um, the main reason it works for me this might tell you what could help you is that I think it's super fun. So whatever you can add to your life that gives you real enjoyment, pleasure, satisfaction, that's going to be helpful for your mental health, and that's what I've found. And if you could give everyone in the world one book, which book would you give them? Um. So. One of my favorite books, and I realize I'm saying this as like a nonfiction science writer, but oh well. Um, one of my favorite books that I would give everyone is the book Life After Life by Kate Atkinson. No. Have you read it? It's, oh my gosh, it's such an amazing fiction book. It's a, a wonderful story of someone's life, which kind of keeps recurring. She has these sort of near-death experiences or kind of deaths that then she's reborn and relives her life in a different way. And um, I just sort of reread it every couple of years because I um, like it so much. Nice. That's always telling, isn't it? If it's a book that you go back to and want to read again and again. And talking of books, um, your book, The Balanced Brain, where can people get a copy of it? Yeah, you can find The Balanced Brain, The Science of Mental Health in any bookstore, Amazon, online, etc. Um, and if you want to get in touch with me, feel free to contact me on Twitter, at Camilla L. Nord. And yeah, I'd be happy to hear from you what you think about the book. And Thank you so much, Camilla, for your time today. Um, really enjoyed this. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. It's been great speaking with you. Thank you for tuning in. I really hope you found my conversation with Camilla insightful. If you enjoyed the episode, please do share it with friends, family and colleagues who you think would find it helpful too. You can also support the podcast by following and rating the show on whichever app you're listening on. Thanks again, and I look forward to bringing you another episode soon.